Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of domestic abuse, murder, suicide, and other adult content. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. In the afternoon of December 8, 1980, 25-year-old Mark David Chapman clutched a freshly bought John Lennon record to his chest. The air outside the Dakota, an apartment building for the rich and famous, was cold and brisk. Each exhalation formed a temporary cloud in the air. Mark stood in a throng of John Lennon fans who clambered and pressed forward as a limo pulled up by the Dakota's entrance. Mark turned as though a magnet had drawn his gaze. His heart thudded, and the gun in his pocket felt immensely heavy. And then he emerged. John Lennon and his wife Yoko Ono stepped out of the Dakota and strode toward the limousine. Like gods among men, they carried themselves with an almost inhuman poise and confidence. The doorman intervened moments later. There'd been a mistake. This wasn't John's limo. His was still on its way. John remained on the doorstep. So close, so accessible. Mark crept toward him. And then they were mere inches from one another. Mark froze. All it would take was one flick of the wrist. Pull the gun out of his pocket, point, and fire. And his destiny would be fulfilled. But Mark couldn't do it. He couldn't even speak. Wordlessly, he passed his album to John, who gave a warm chuckle before signing his autograph. Minutes later, John and Yoko climbed into a taxi cab and drove away. Mark scrutinized his freshly signed album, overwhelmed with the shame of his failure. But he made himself a promise. Next time, he wouldn't be caught off guard. Next time, he'd finish what he'd come to New York to do kill John Lennon. One death can change the world. At least that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. Like the lives of many great men and women throughout history, our journey here has come to an end. This is our last episode before we go on hiatus for a while. As we wind down, we want to say thanks to our loyal listeners. We wouldn't have made it this far without your support. We truly appreciate the kind words and thoughtful reviews you've sent us. And we hope you stick around to listen to everything else ParCast has planned. You'll still be able to find all episodes of Assassinations for free on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Keep an eye out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network for updates on our full slate of shows. To send us off, we have a special one-part episode on John Lennon and the man who murdered him, Mark David Chapman. A lifetime of undiagnosed schizophrenia led Mark to believe he was destined to kill John Lennon, a destiny he fulfilled on December 8th. 1980. This week, we'll look at Mark's and John's lives and explore how the two were set on their deadly collision course. We'll also explore how John changed the world and look at how history might have been different if he'd survived. One night in the fall of 1980, 29-year-old Gloria Chapman woke with a start. She was surprised to find herself alone in bed. Where was her husband? Muffled sounds, difficult to make out, filtered through the door. Gloria crept through the hallways, straining to listen. The sounds grew clearer, eventually settling into the familiar tones of a Beatles song. Well, not quite. It was a mixtape her husband, Mark David Chapman, had made. Bits and pieces of various John Lennon songs spliced together into a cacophony of sound, which meant Gloria knew exactly where Mark was. She strode toward the stereo system. 
Mark sat in the dark, completely naked. He was staring at the stereo, entranced by the sound of John's disjointed, spliced, and re-edited vocals. As the track drew to a close, Mark hit the rewind button, then play again. He continued to play the tracks repeatedly through the night. Nobody ever suspected that Mark David Chapman might someday become an infamous assassin. But the signs that he had an unusual way of thinking appeared early. As a child, he was quiet, withdrawn. He struggled to make friends. But Mark's sullenness was rooted in more than ordinary shyness. He grew up in the 1960s in a violent household where his father often beat his mother. When Mark was very young, he was thrown into conflicts between his parents. He believed that one day, if he was big enough or strong enough, he could fight his father off and protect his mother. Instead, he usually ended up taking a few blows himself. Mark didn't only feel responsible for his mother's physical safety, he also became her confidant. She felt alone in her marriage and unable to open up to her peers about the abuse she suffered. Instead, she talked to the only family member who could understand what she was going through, her son. It was a lot of responsibility for a young boy. Most elementary-age children only need to worry about which toys to share with their friends. But Mark was carrying the weight of his mother's safety and well-being. The crushing expectations warped his self-image. As psychologist Alice Hoagland explained, children like Mark grow up with incredibly grandiose ideas about themselves. The child at an early age learns the bizarre message that he is so powerful he can take care of the most powerful person in the world, his mother. Besides his troubled home life, a prepubescent Mark also suffered from undiagnosed schizophrenia. According to the American Psychiatric Association, schizophrenia is a chronic mental disorder that can impede a person's ability to distinguish fantasy from reality. Symptoms like hallucinations, confusion, and difficulties thinking critically typically first appear when a male patient is in their late teens or early 20s. But Mark's first visual hallucinations started when he was too young to remember the year or his age. The events of that night, however, were permanently seared into his memory. By that point, he'd been hearing voices for years. For so long, he didn't even think of them as notable. But one sleepless night, the school-age boy lay awake, listening to his parents fighting in the next room. Mark was exhausted. He had a cold, but was too overcome with dread and anger to sleep. The arguments he heard were too terrible to tune out. But he suddenly had an idea. He could communicate with the voices he heard by telepathically beaming his thoughts through the walls. Mark sent streaks of mental energy zapping through the room. In response, countless magical beings, who Mark called little people, poured in through the doors, windows, and walls. They chanted, Mark the King of Music, Mark the King of the Little People, Long Live the King of the Little People. From that point on, Mark saw little people everywhere. When he was angry or sad, they lashed out, fighting and hurting each other. When he was happy, they celebrated with him. And when Mark was in a particularly sour mood, he imagined that he could press a button and explode the little people's community. Hundreds would scream and die for his entertainment. He'd respond to his imagined massacres saying, I'm sorry, but that's what happens when I get angry. He never told anyone about the strange visions he saw. Mark knew that he was different from other people, but he didn't understand how. He began searching for an explanation, but it never occurred to him that he suffered from mental health problems. Instead, he found an answer in Jesus.
In 1970, 15-year-old Mark received an invitation from a classmate to attend a religious retreat. At the time, the evangelistic preaching didn't make much of an impression, but he made two life-changing friendships. First, he met Michael McFarland, a devout young man who later encouraged Mark to read his favorite book, The Catcher in the Rye. Mark also reconnected with Jessica Blankenship, a childhood friend with whom he'd lost touch. In the following months, Jessica instructed Mark in the ways of the faith. They began to fall for one another, but the devout Jessica couldn't become involved with a boy who denied the existence of God. Thanks largely to her encouragement, Mark converted to Christianity in the spring of 1971, about six months after he'd attended the retreat. His new religion gave Mark a way to explain his strange thoughts and experiences. God had a plan for him, and the almost mystical visions he'd been seeing since birth were confirmation of his holy destiny. What he really needed was a diagnosis and therapeutic help. So even as he threw himself headfirst into his faith, Mark's mental state deteriorated. After he graduated high school in 1972, Mark bounced from job to job, town to town. He worked as a counselor at a YMCA, quit, and then was rehired multiple times. He proposed to Jessica, then later called off their engagement. By the spring of 1976, 21-year-old Mark felt hopeless. His glorious destiny hadn't manifested. God hadn't shown him the way. He began to fantasize about killing himself and decided to spend the last days of his life in one of the most beautiful places in the world, Honolulu, Hawaii. But shortly after his airplane touched down, he had second thoughts. The tropical scenery was enchanting, pristine beaches beckoned. The world had too much to offer. He decided that he wanted to live after all, but once he returned to Ohio, Mark's earlier depressive mood returned. He flew to Hawaii with suicidal intentions a total of three times. In May of 1977, he tried to gas himself to death with carbon monoxide at the side of a road. Luckily, he wasn't successful, and 22-year-old Mark was admitted to a mental health ward in Castle Memorial Hospital. He only stayed there as a patient for a few weeks until he seemed to shake off his depressive funk. At that time, Mark was diagnosed with depressive reaction, depressive neurosis, severe. But the doctors didn't recognize his schizophrenia. Nevertheless, the care he received proved life-changing. Mark felt so good about his experience in the hospital that he soon began working there. Things seemed to be turning around. He recommitted himself to God. His mood brightened. He began making plans for the future, including an extended round-the-world vacation. Along the way, he fell in love. In early 1978, 22-year-old Mark met 27-year-old Gloria Abe, a travel agent who helped plan his global trip. From their first conversation, the two had a clear, powerful attraction. They were quickly engaged in early 1979 and then married on June 2nd that year. Gloria took her vows to love, honor, and support her husband seriously. No matter how erratic or unsettling his behavior became, she stood by his side, even when his impulses turned violent. Mark has never publicly clarified when he first read J.D. Salinger's masterwork, The Catcher in the Rye, but the novel had a striking effect on his psyche. It tells the story of Holden Caulfield, a disaffected teenager who spends a long weekend alone in New York City to escape the phonies, or dishonest people. Although he was nearly a decade Holden senior and came from a very different background, Mark took Holden's words to heart. He too thought that the world was infected by phonies, hypocrites who cared only about their own self-aggrandizement and were willing to let the world burn. Ironically, Mark was obsessed with pursuing his own fame and fortune. 
but he thought that the way to make a name for himself and fulfill God's destiny was to assassinate an even bigger phony, exposing their hypocrisy to the world. A clear victim presented himself in October of 1980 when Esquire magazine wrote a piece on former Beatle John Lennon. The article decried John's status as a washed-up has-been. It had been 11 years since the Beatles had broken up, and five since John had released any new music. Even worse, he was living off the fruits of his past fame and fortune. He whiled his days away, doing nothing. For a celebrity who repeatedly publicly advocated for class equality, it seemed deeply hypocritical that he'd live as an unemployed, out-of-touch millionaire. As Mark read the profile, he felt like it had been written just for him. It sent a crystal clear message. John Lennon was exactly the type of phony he hated. The sort of person who Mark was destined to murder. In the following weeks, Mark became obsessed. He bought a biography, John Lennon, One Day at a Time by Anthony Fawcett. As the book discussed John's wealth and opulent lifestyle, Mark only became further enraged. Mark began splicing together clips from various John Lennon songs to play secret messages. The phony must die, says the catcher in the rye. Don't believe in John Lennon. Imagine John Lennon is dead. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd play and replay the audio tracks late into the night, sitting alone, naked, occasionally awakening his wife, Gloria. Mark was moving beyond obsession. He couldn't get John Lennon out of his mind. As he saw it, John was a fake, a fraud, a phony a deceiver who'd won the fame and notoriety that rightly belonged to Mark. For too long, he'd been enjoying a claim that didn't belong to him. Soon, he'd pay with his life. Up next, we look at the life of John Lennon and explore how Mark David Chapman acted on his deadly impulses. Now, back to the story. Mark David Chapman believed that he was destined to become famous by assassinating the phonies who were already famous. After an unflattering 1980 Esquire article depicted John Lennon as a hypocrite, Mark resolved to murder the former Beatle. But reality was far more complicated than he believed. John Lennon wasn't just an out-of-touch millionaire locked away in his fancy apartment. In fact, He'd been on a lifelong journey through stardom, one marked with struggle, hard work, and tragedy. He was born on October 9, 1940, in Liverpool, England. Accounts of his parents' relationship and early home life vary, but John often suggested in interviews that his early childhood was troubled and unstable. When he was five years old, John began living with his aunt, Mimi Smith. In her home, he felt nurtured and loved. He had the opportunity to attend good schools as he grew up. From a young age, John showed an obsession with art, especially music. His aunt would sometimes play the radio in the evenings, and John's mother taught him different instruments. Like many other artistic youths, John was clever, but he had a rebellious streak. He got good grades when he bothered to work for them, but got in frequent trouble for cutting class, gambling on school grounds, and insolence. While his behavior was frustrating to his teachers, it made him popular with his peers. So popular, in fact, that in 1956, he was easily able to convince a few friends to form a band, the Quarrymen. Like many aspiring musicians of the 1950s, the Quarrymen played skiffle, a sort of missing link between the blues and rock and roll. A 16-year-old John didn't yet show the glimmers of talent that would later make him a star. He was untrained, unfocused. Many of his rehearsals degenerated into procrastination and pranks. Naturally, when the quarrymen weren't initially successful, 
John's bandmates grew impatient or bored with their hobby. Some quit and their positions stayed vacant. Others were hurriedly replaced until the quarrymen became something of a revolving door for high school musical talent. John's classmates, Bill Smith, Ivan Vaughn, and Nigel Wally all served brief stints in the band. But John made a lifelong connection at a party on July 6, 1957, in Woolton, England. There, 16-year-old John met 15-year-old Paul McCartney, who was open to playing with the Quarrymen. John Lennon's and Paul McCartney's collaboration would soon be the stuff of legend. 14-year-old George Harrison joined the Quarrymen the following year. By now, the band had morphed to play more rock and roll-inspired tunes. It was also shedding members at an alarming rate, until soon only John, Paul, and George remained. Unlike their former bandmates, however, the trio wouldn't be deterred. They were determined to become stars and soon identified what they believed was holding them back, their name. The Quarrymen lacked the sex appeal necessary to inspire a devoted fandom. The band tried and discarded a series of aliases before settling on the Beatles. Meanwhile, they took other, more constructive steps to improve. They ran tighter, more productive rehearsals. They booked gigs at pubs and parties and listened carefully to the criticism they received. They signed a manager, then an agent. And on December 27, 1960, they got their first real taste of success. The Beatles were booked to perform that night at Litherland Town Hall. By the time their set began, the venue was already crowded and swinging. Hip young couples grooving to the music piped in through the PA system. But the band set up their instruments, cranked the volume to maximum, and played a single guitar riff to get the crowd's attention. It was like a magic spell had been cast over the audience. Everyone pushed, shoved, stampeded to the stage to see the show. John had never seen anything like it. Later, this kind of audience enthusiasm would be dubbed Beatlemania. A little over a year later, Ringo Starr joined the Beatles in August 1962. Finally, the band we know and love today was formed and their career was only beginning to take off. Their first hit song, Please Please Me, was released in January 1963. Then, in May of that year, their album with the same title reached number one in the charts. That November, their second album was also a number one hit. In February 1964, the British sensation traveled to the distant United States to perform on an episode of The Ed Sullivan Show. The program, watched by more than 70 million viewers, solidified their iconic status. Now, yesterday and today, our theater's been jammed with newspapermen and hundreds of photographers from all over the nation, and these veterans agree with me that the city never has witnessed the excitement stirred by these youngsters from Liverpool who call themselves the Beatles. Now, tonight, you're going to twice be entertained by them. Right now, and again in the second half of our show, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! For nearly a decade, from 1963 to 1970, the Beatles dominated the charts. They released 12 albums during that period, 11 of which were number one bestsellers. But their meteoric success just disguised the growing tension behind the scenes. John and his bandmates were becoming disgruntled with each other. They couldn't agree on what kind of music to write, and they frequently squabbled over who was really in charge. To make matters worse, on March 20, 1969, 28-year-old John married a 36-year-old performance artist named Yoko Ono. She encouraged him to move from mainstream rock into more experimental genres, only driving the rift between the bandmates deeper. The band was destined to fracture, and it did in 1970. John had, for a long time, been talking about quitting, 
He'd even stopped coming to rehearsals, although he still claimed he was coming back. In March, Paul called John to say he simply couldn't stay with the Beatles anymore. John replied, good. That makes two of us who have accepted it mentally. Although he no longer had a little help from his friends, John was determined to continue his musical career, even if that meant he had to go solo. In 1970, he released a collaborative album with his wife, John Lennon Plastic Ono Band. His follow-up, 1971's Imagine, was a chart-topper, demonstrating that he still had an artistic spark, even without the Beatles. John and Yoko's later work became more political. In addition to releasing songs like Give Peace a Chance and Imagine, the pair spoke out about racial inequality and the Vietnam War. Of course, their attempts at activism drew some criticism. John and Yoko staged a bed-in in which they refused to leave their mattress for a week in opposition to worldwide suffering. The toothless slacktivism was widely mocked and derided. By 1975, 35-year-old John Lennon was exhausted. He'd been in the spotlight for over a decade, constantly drawing unwanted attention and criticism, never able to enjoy a single moment of peace. When John and Yoko's first son was born on October 9th, John realized that he just wanted to focus on being a good father. So that month, he publicly announced that he was retiring to devote more time to his family. But he couldn't leave his art behind for long. In 1980, John and Yoko began collaborating on what would prove to be his final album. Unfortunately, John's resurgent artistic impulses didn't please all his critics. In October 1980, Esquire magazine wrote a scathing profile on John. It was the same article that eventually found its way into Mark David Chapman's hands and sealed John's fate. Since he'd first resolved to murder John Lennon, Mark had only become more obsessive. He started to see John almost as a mirror image of himself. They'd both grown up in non-traditional households. They'd both married Japanese-American wives. And they would both soon capture media attention. There was one key way that John and Mark differed. Mark had a destiny, but he also remembered his humble beginnings. He wanted to live like the Catcher in the Rise protagonist, Holden Caulfield. He'd be authentic, an everyman. But he couldn't do that so long as the evidence of John's wealth and hypocrisy filled every newsstand and TV report. If Mark ever wanted a normal life, John had to die. 25-year-old Mark bought a gun on October 27, 1980. He explained to the dealer that he was looking for something for self-defense and asked for advice about which model was the deadliest. He bought the recommended Smith & Wesson snub-nosed revolver, but no ammunition. He was concerned about his ability to bring bullets on a plane and figured he could buy some once he arrived in New York City on October 30th. This proved more difficult than Mark had originally assumed. New York's strict gun regulations prevented non-residents from purchasing ammunition. Instead, Mark had to take another trip, this time to Georgia, where his friend police officer Dana Reeves lived. Once again, Mark claimed that he needed a weapon for self-defense. Dana, convinced, gave him several hollow-point Smith & Wesson Plus P cartridges. Now, armed and deadly, Mark returned to New York City for the second time a few days later. He felt as though he was fated to be there. His favorite novel, The Catcher in the Rye, took place in the city. He even got a room at the Waldorf Astoria, the same hotel that the novel's protagonist, Holden Caulfield, stays in. But once more, he wasn't able to move forward with the assassination plot. This time, it was his own self-doubt that got in the way. One dark night, he sat awake in his hotel room, wondering if he really had it in him to shoot a man in cold blood. 
Maybe he was mistaken to believe that this was his destiny. Maybe he should just go home. On Tuesday, November 11th, Mark called his wife to ask for advice. As soon as she picked up the phone, he blurted out everything. He said, Gloria, listen, I'm afraid to tell you this, but I've got to. I've got to say it now. John Lennon, I bought a gun. I was going to kill him, but your love has saved me. Gloria was astonished. She'd noticed Mark's unstable behavior before, but she'd never imagined that he could be violent. Terrified of what he might do, she begged Mark to abandon his murderous plot and come home. Surprisingly, her pleas worked. Two hours after their phone conversation, Mark arrived at the airport and called his wife again. He told her he was about to board a plane back to Honolulu. When Mark got home on November 12, 1980, Gloria hoped that all of his violent fantasies and murderous impulses were behind him. After all, he'd left New York with so little prodding. Surely he was on the path to recovery now. Whether she was in denial or just genuinely hopeful that her husband had changed, Gloria didn't bother to report his murderous plot to the police. Nor did she encourage him to seek psychological help. She didn't even take away his gun or bullets. But it was unrealistic to think that Mark would get better just after one conversation. For the next few weeks, every time he signed in at work, he did so not under his own name, but as John Lennon. This may have been a sign of his ongoing obsession, or worrying evidence that his identity and John's were further blurring in his mind. He couldn't let go of that nagging sensation. He was meant for great things. He was destined to kill the rock star. On December 6, 1980, Mark boarded a flight to New York for the third time. He didn't tell Gloria of his plans. He didn't want her to try to stop him again. The plane landed early the next morning. This time, he didn't check into the Waldorf Astoria. He was running low on funds, and while he liked the symbolism, he couldn't afford to stay at the expensive hotel. Instead, he slept at the much more affordable YMCA for a day before relocating to the Sheraton Hotel. On his first day in New York, Mark took a taxi cab to the Dakota, a famous elite apartment complex where it was rumored that John Lennon lived. Once he arrived, Mark approached the doorman and asked if John Lennon was staying there. The guard answered that he wasn't sure. Even if John was a resident, he wouldn't be spotted coming in or out as he was out of town. In reality, the doormen were instructed to pretend not to know who lived in the building in order to protect the resident's privacy. And John Lennon was in town, a fact the doorman knew but lied about. The falsehood was pretty transparent, especially given the crowd of Beatles fans who camped outside the Dakota's front doors every day. Within a few hours, Mark befriended Jude Stein and Gerald Mole, who spent every day hoping to catch a glimpse of John Lennon. Posing as a Beatles superfan, Mark fit right in with the waiting crowd. He bought a copy of John's newest album, Double Fantasy, and claimed he was there to get the cover autographed. He swapped Beatles trivia with the others. He proved charming, easy to talk to. Even the doorman began to let his guard down and joined in Mark's banter. For two days, his life was caught in a repetitive cycle. He'd wait outside the Dakota, befriending other Beatles lovers and getting what information from them he could. At night, he'd return to his hotel room, exhausted and unsuccessful. In order to keep his spirits up, Mark carried his copy of The Catcher in the Rye with him everywhere. When he grew bored or stressed, he'd thumb through the familiar pages and take comfort in Holden Caulfield's observations. Shortly after 10.30 a.m. on December 8th, he was so busy reading his book, he completely missed it when John Lennon climbed out of a cab and walked into the building. 
Only once the rock star was out of sight did the doorman tap Mark on the shoulder and ask if he'd spotted the beetle. Mark was crushed to realize he'd missed his chance. He resolved that the next time he'd pay more attention. Meanwhile, 40-year-old John and 47-year-old Yoko had no inkling of the danger they were in. They spent the morning of their final day together at a photo shoot in their home. For hours, the couple posed, capturing iconic images that represented their relationship and their beliefs. At 4.30, the couple left the Dakota to work on a new album at Record Plant, a midtown studio. As John exited the building to wait for his limo, Mark pushed through the crowd to ask for his autograph. He thrust his newly purchased album at the rock star. While the star scrawled his name across the cover, a photographer snapped a picture of him with Mark David Chapman sullenly watching over his shoulder, a looming, dangerous presence. Nobody could predict how prescient that photograph would be. A few hours later, when Mark returned to his old spot outside the Dakota after dinner, his new friends and companions were naturally surprised to see him. Why was he still there if he'd gotten the autograph he wanted? Mark answered that he was seeking Yoko's signature in addition to John's. It seemed like as good an explanation as any, so once more, nobody questioned him. Meanwhile, John and Yoko worked late at the recording studio. They didn't leave until close to 11 p.m. The exhausted couple collapsed into their limo, eager for a quiet night of good sleep at home. All too soon, their car arrived at the Dakota. When John Lennon climbed out and approached his apartment building for the final time, Mark spotted him. The would-be killer felt like his psyche suddenly split in two. He was an adult, someone composed, calm, law-abiding. But he was also a child, prone to angry tantrums, incapable of controlling himself. In a later interview, he explained, the adult was just a front for an act of evil that was carried out by a child. It was a child's anger, a child's jealousy, a child's rage. But the adult was so undeveloped, he didn't know what to do with it. The adult knew about guns, and he knew how to get on an airplane, and he knew how to get money. So they kind of conspired together to kill a hero. He lifted the gun and fired five times. One shot missed, but two bullets tore through John's back and two more punctured his shoulder. He stumbled forward, fleeing the onslaught as best he could. He made it just inside the Dakota before he collapsed to the ground. Up next, doctors scramble to save John Lennon's life, and Mark David Chapman finally receives the fame he believes is his due. Now, back to the story. On December 8, 1980, 25-year-old Mark David Chapman shot 40-year-old former Beatle John Lennon outside the Dakota apartments. Four bullets tore through John's body, but didn't kill him immediately. Instead, he fled inside his building before collapsing in the lobby. Yoko Ono raced to his side, yelling, John's been shot. She urged him to sit down, stay still. Someone would call 911. First responders would be there soon. John would be okay, so long as he didn't panic. Minutes later, ambulances arrived, as did the police. Luckily, the latter didn't have a long or lengthy investigation ahead of them. Mark David Chapman was still at the scene of the crime, sitting quietly reading his copy of The Catcher in the Rye. Mark had never expected to get away with the crime. In fact, he longed for the opposite. He wanted to be known as John Lennon's killer. So when the police slapped handcuffs over his wrists, he explained that he'd acted alone he was no longer armed, and that he would come along quietly. 
Once he was inside the squad car, he added, I am the catcher in the rye. Later, when he was booked at the police station, Mark handed an officer a copy of the catcher in the rye. Inside the cover, he'd scrawled the words, this is my statement. His antics didn't clarify his motives, but it did get him the fame and attention he'd always wanted. And John Lennon, for the first time in years, was treated like an anonymous everyman on the street. The ambulance drivers had only been told that there'd been a shooting at the Dakota. They didn't know the name of the victim. And when they first saw John Lennon, they didn't recognize him. One first responder asked, do you know who you are? As John was strapped onto a stretcher and loaded into an ambulance. It wasn't until he arrived at the hospital for emergency surgery that anyone identified him. By that time, TV and radio hosts were already reporting on the shooting. But John's surgeons had bigger problems than the news coverage around their celebrity patient. Within minutes of arrival, John Lennon died on the table. The heart surgeon was tasked with the difficult chore of telling Yoko Ono that she was now a widow. When he delivered the news, she burst into tears. She cried, It's not true. I don't believe you. You're lying. Although Yoko's heart was breaking, she had to be strong for her and John's son, Sean. She requested that the hospital not publicly release the news about her husband's death until Sean had the chance to hear it from her first. Five-year-old Sean didn't fully know how to process the words his mother told him late that night. He grappled with the thought of what life would be like without his father. But later on, he glanced out a window to see an impromptu vigil outside the Dakota. For the first time, he realized that his father had meant something to the world outside his family. He was a celebrity, and hundreds of strangers were there to share Sean's grief. Through the night of December 8, 1980, the entire world mourned. Yoko Ono declined to have a formal funeral for her murdered husband. Instead, she asked mourners the world over to honor him with 10 minutes of silence at 2 p.m. on December 14th. At the appointed time, more than 50,000 people gathered in Central Park for an unofficial memorial service. In spite of the size of the crowd, the park was utterly still and quiet at 2 o'clock. Even some radio stations remained silent for the designated time period. All his life, John Lennon had advocated for peace, harmony, and love. But his death brought out the opposite emotions in his fans. People reacted with anger, hate. Naturally, they channeled their frustration toward his killer, Mark David Chapman. One of the reasons Mark had killed John Lennon was that he wanted to be famous and he achieved that goal. Dr. Naomi Goldstein, who worked at Bellevue Hospital's psychiatric ward, had already heard all about the murder by the time he checked in after his arrest. In spite of whatever presumptions she brought to the examination, Goldstein was shocked and fascinated by the things Mark told her. She determined that he didn't fully recognize that he and John were two separate people. The murder, in a way, had been an attempted suicide. The vitriol he received during his treatment didn't help matters. Grieving Beatles fans wrote to Mark, blaming him for their grief, for their heartbreak. He even received death threats. One unsigned letter with a Royal Oak, Michigan postmark read, you killed my hero. You're so insane. Watch out when you get out of jail. You're home forever because I'm gonna blow your brains in. You're the worst person ever. From the world. P.S. I hope you feel awful. P.S.S. I can't believe I wasted a whole stamp on such a nothing. The public condemnation of Mark was so severe, he had to wear a bulletproof vest to his arraignment on December 9th, and again when he offered his plea on June 22, 1981. 
Although Mark's lawyers thought they had a strong insanity defense, he opted to plead guilty. He explained that while he felt no guilt for his actions, and he was utterly convinced he'd acted correctly, he could feel God guiding him not to fight the charges. In response, Judge Dennis Edwards sentenced Mark to 20 years to life in prison. Mark approached his sentence much the same way he had everything else in life, convinced of his own importance. In 2000, when he was first eligible for parole after 19 years, he announced that he'd recommitted himself to Jesus Christ. He'd reformed and had direct confirmation from God himself that he'd paid his debt to society and deserved to go free. The courts weren't so convinced. His appeal was denied. Mark's parole was refused again in 2002 and in 2004, and every two years since then. Since his original sentencing, Mark has applied for parole 10 times and has been consistently rejected. During his 2018 hearing, the parole panel explained, while no one person's life is any more valuable than another's life, the fact that you chose someone who was not only a world-renowned person and beloved by millions, regardless of the pain and suffering you would cause to his family, friends, and so many others, you demonstrated a callous disregard for the sanctity of human life and the pain and suffering of others. As of this recording, Mark David Chapman is still being held in prison. And the world has moved on without him and without John Lennon. Surprisingly, John's death didn't spell the end of the Beatles. Although the group had been broken up for a decade, several posthumous albums were released in the years following John's murder. In 1988, the Beatles were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, a long overdue recognition of the way they'd shaped popular culture throughout the 1960s. John's former bandmate, George Harrison, passed away of lung cancer on November 29, 2001. The remaining Beatles, as of this recording, are still alive. In a strange way, John Lennon's death helped rehabilitate Yoko Ono's public image. Prior to 1980, she'd been blamed for breaking up the Beatles, thanks to the short time that passed between her marriage and the band's dissolution. But when Yoko lost her husband, the world mourned with her. Overnight, her persona changed from that of a fame seeker to that of a grieving widow. Rock and roll fans worldwide had lost an icon, but she'd lost something bigger, her true love. After John's death, she continued to make art, fading in and out of the spotlight. Most recently, in 2018, she opened an exhibition in Liverpool called Double Fantasy. Using personal items that had belonged to her husband and herself, Yoko honored John Lennon's memory while commenting on the nature of marriage, celebrity, and loss. John Lennon's songs, Give Peace a Chance and Imagine, have been used in countless protests and rallies since his death. He's been quoted, played, and reproduced. He's become an icon of progressive activism. Through his murder, John Lennon became a martyr for any number of liberal causes. The movement was larger than any one man, but the fact that his death coincided with the end of the hippie era permanently linked the two in the minds of the world. Esquire magazine's old claims that John Lennon was a wash-up, a has-been, were quickly replaced with the new narrative. John Lennon had been the voice of a generation, a musical genius, the embodiment of love and acceptance. But what if he hadn't been struck down in the prime of his life? What if he hadn't died in 1980? Would he still be so fondly remembered and celebrated? According to David Camp from Vanity Fair, no. 
As Camp observed in his write-up, Lennon at 70, John Lennon, for all his social advocacy, was still a musician. And like many aging rock stars, he was destined to fade into oblivion. Camp imagined how John's life might have played out if he'd survived. He traced an imaginary progression through old age and obscurity modeled on other long-lived contemporaries. He speculated that John would eventually abandon his ideals, shifting from his liberal hippie beliefs to a more ultra-conservative viewpoint. After all, he'd already demonstrated his materialism through his expensive tastes and meaningless protests. Why not go all in? He'd alienate his original fans, becoming a parody of himself. Hunter Davis of The Independent struggled to accept that John could undergo such a dramatic personality shift. He speculated that if John had survived, he'd live out his final years essentially unchanged. That meant he'd continue releasing albums, but wouldn't keep up with the new trends in the music scene. He might write the occasional hit, but for the most part, he'd live to be forgotten and ignored. He'd become exactly the sort of wash-up that Esquire had once accused him of being. Camp and Davis agree, however, that John Lennon's prime was past by the time he died. The murder, ironically, allowed him to leave the earth with his legacy more or less intact. The assassinated John Lennon got to end his life as the epitome of love and peace. A surviving Lennon would become a shell of himself. But maybe John Lennon would have been the exception to the rule. Maybe he would have spent his golden years continuing to campaign for equal rights. Maybe under his advocacy and guidance, the hippie era could have lasted a few more years, made a few more gains. Perhaps today, John Lennon would be tweeting about hashtag MeToo and Black Lives Matter. He'd be posting inspirational photos on Instagram and mentoring up-and-coming musicians. John Lennon sought to be a light to the world. And while Mark David Chapman may have temporarily doused his flame, John's glow shines on through those who came after him. His hope couldn't be doused any more than the sun could be put out. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. This will be our last episode before we go on hiatus, but we hope you enjoyed it. If you want to hear more dramatic stories from history, be sure to check out Dictators and Political Scandals on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Assassinations for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Assassinations on Spotify, just open the app and type Assassinations in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast network. Thanks again for listening. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Assassinations was written by Angela Jorgensen with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. 